Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by David Chidgey, a.k.a. Stanford Chidge of the famous Chelsea fancast. Chidge, welcome to the show. Hi Connor, how are you? All good, all good here in sunny Dubai. Hopefully you can say the same <laughs> back where you are at the moment. Um, it's been a lovely day, mate, in Hampshire, that's for sure. I mean, where to begin, of course, when we speak about Chelsea, there is no end of content, which we could, I suppose, divulge and speak about the present day. But if we're going to take it really back to the start, Chidge, um, could you elaborate and please tell us upon your first ever Chelsea memory? Well, I, I, you know, I had a kind of a really weird route into Chelsea. Uh, I'll try and I'll try and not make this like an hour long because it could quite easily be. But, um, you know, one of the reasons why I kind of love what I do with all the podcasts and everything and, and particularly a lot of the people that I that I, I know who, you know, who I go to the games with now is because I'm absolutely in awe of most of them, because these are all people that have been going either since the 60s or more to the point. You know, they were born into Chelsea. They're like second, third, fourth generation Chelsea fans. And they were taken by their dad when they were about five. And they've been going ever since, you know. And I'm in awe of these people because that is not the experience that I had. Um, I grew up in Hampshire. Uh, dad, uh, bless his heart, he was a Pompey fan. And he, and he took me to Portsmouth when I was about seven. And I absolutely hated it. I thought this is a load of old rubbish. Um, so he kind of gave up on the football thing for a while. And then he, and he took me to see, would you believe, Southampton versus Crystal Palace in the FA Cup semi-final in 1976, which, of course, was played at Stamford Bridge. And, you know, I didn't really have a team. I, I mean, weirdly, I, I mean, as a really, really small kid, I kind of, I, inverted commas, I liked Leeds, largely because they were winning stuff, I expect. And that's what happens when you're very small. But I didn't really have a team. But I, I was just absolutely enchanted by Stamford Bridge. I thought this was the most amazing. I don't think I'd ever been to London before either. So it was the most amazing place I'd ever seen. And I just absolutely loved it. And I was much more interested about who played at this ground rather than watching, would you believe, Peter Osgood, the only time I ever saw him play live, bizarrely enough, playing for Southampton. Uh, and I kind of and, and I think I think the bug the bug stuck, as it often does with kids. You know, when you take a kid to a football match, at the right age, at the right time, for the first time, the, the, they get the bug, you know, and I got the bug. But because I lived in Hampshire and dad wasn't a Chelsea fan, I, that was it. I never got to be taken again, you know. So I kind of vicariously started following Chelsea largely on the big match, which was the uh, the old kind of London uh, London weekend TV station would, would, would have the big match on a Sunday. And Chelsea used to be on it a fair amount. And they had Ray Wilkins playing for them, who I loved. I thought he was brilliant. And uh, they had this amazing Umbro kit with little diamonds down it. And they were absolutely shit, but it didn't matter to me because I didn't really understand that anyway, you know. Um, and anyway, I, I eventually I moved up to London in the, in the mid 80s when I went to university there. And as luck would have it, I ended up living in Chelsea. And I mean, you know, I would go to the odd game, but I mean, I won't lie. I mean, I, I didn't have... I just didn't understand the culture of going to football every week. Like all of these wonderful mates I have now who, who've been born into that and have lived it for their entire lives. It just never, it never, it never occurred to me. Why would you do that? You know, it was just, you know, so I used to go as an extension of getting pissed on a Saturday, really. Um, 
and uh and then i moved back to winchester and again too lazy to travel up from winchester so it wasn't really i basically my my brother-in-law who used to be he was the first kind of uh, person i had on the fan cast dr mark and he married my sister in the kind of early 90s and obviously found out that he was a chelsea fan he found out i was one and you know we, we spent a lot of time watching games but not going and he said look are you moving back to london and I said, well, we're thinking of it. And he said, well, look, when you move back to London, you've got to get a season ticket with me and we'll both go. And I said, brilliant. And I moved up in 2001 and, and we, got, we both got a season ticket for the next season. And I've been, I've been sat there ever since. So it's a bit of a weird old journey for me. This is why I identified kind of with a lot of overseas fans, you know, who were, who were not lucky enough to live here or were not born into it. I kind of understand their connection with it as equally as I understand my best mates who, as I said, I am totally in awe of because they are better Chelsea supporters than I will ever be. Yeah, I think it, Chidge, I think it's something there like scarcely creates value. You know, myself and the brothers, when we were younger, we'd have that one trip to Chelsea every year and it'd be something which we'd be looking forward to and it's something which we'd be counting down the days to religiously. And it's experiences like that you know, going down to Stamford Bridge, walking past, you know, Brogan's on the Fulham Road, dodging the horse feces, all that, seeing Marco Worrell at his, at his <laughs> style. That's stuff that will never, that will never leave my memory. And I think all we're after, no matter whether we're living in SW4 ourselves or in Dubai or elsewhere in the west coast of Ireland, we're all looking for a sense of belonging, right? And whether it's 3 p.m. on Stamford Bridge on a Saturday afternoon, you can bet your bottom dollar there's hundreds of millions of fans all across the world tuning in to watch that very game. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly that. I mean, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Because I clearly got it in that first match I went to uh, in 76, but I clearly didn't get it in other respects. It was like it... There was no expectation from me that that would now become a, a, a weekly or, or, a, or a more regular thing, you know, um, and it never really did. and uh, never really did until until I moved back to London, to be honest. I mean, it wasn't, as I said, when I was I, mean, I was a student when I started going in the 80s. So I was into all sorts of other stuff as well, you know, so, you know, it wasn't wasn't going to take up most of my life. But it's, it's so different when 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 you are born into it and it's it's part of what the family does, you know, dad and the boys go to the football every Saturday, they've got season tickets or whatever, and they do the same ritual every week. And I think if you grow up with that, it's a very different experience. But, you know, it just shows you people, people find their own way, people find their own path, you know, and I mean, a lot of my experience uh, of football really uh, in terms of, you know, I think, I think there are two types of people. There are people who get football and there are people who don't basically, uh, and you don't always have to go every week. I mean, my experience of football really came from playing it every weekend. You know, from the age of eight till 16, I was playing for local teams every week. So I was I was obsessed with football, but not obsessed with Chelsea or obsessed with any team like a lot of mates that I know now were and still are, you know. So I kind of found it in a very different way. But hey, why not? Of course. And then within all of this, how did you manage to become, I suppose, one of the most outspoken Chelsea fans in a good way by setting up the fan cast? What was the origin story behind that? Well, I've, I've got a big gob, Connor. That's probably why. But uh, no, I mean, I, I, I mean, uh, when I got into 
making I, I became a tv producer and director and the first program i got involved with was or the first the first program where i got my break as it were really and I, and, and i say my break i was i was quite old at the time i must have been in my late 30s i don't know anyway uh it was a program for sky called the greatest goals against man united and the greatest goals for man united and i produced the goals against obviously and that was a very successful program so basically what happens if you make one really good program then people want you to make another program like it so i suddenly got the tag of making as, as somebody who made good football programs and clearly massively chelsea bias and everything that i did i i, I insisted on making sure that was the case because there's way too much bias against Chelsea in the media. So I felt it was my mission to address that. So I kept on getting gig after gig after gig. Anyway, I ended up, would you believe, making um, a kind of a, a daily football show, sports show for Nuts TV. I mean, the indignity of it. But uh, I was doing that. And, and I got fed up with uh, people telling me how to make an authentic kind of fan-based football programme. And I bumped into the people that ran Football Fancast. I think it, I think I just got invited to their launch party and I met them and they were really good people. And uh, they said, well, look, we, we run a, a company that basically uh, promotes a lot of podcasts for, for, for clubs. Would you like to do the Chelsea one? I said, yeah. Uh, so I jumped at that. And really, it was the way for me to kind of have complete control, you know, so to do a, do a program on Chelsea that I love and have complete control over it to, to present it, to write the script, to have the people that I want on there who were my mates who I, I knew wouldn't argue with me because, you know, obviously I knew what I was doing as a producer and a director. Uh, and I was determined to make a, a pod because nobody knew what a podcast was in those days, Connor. I mean, this is 2008, you know. So I thought, no, I know. I will just make it like a radio show, uh, but we'll do it in a pub. It'll be after the game and it'll be basically like an extension of us talking about the football in a pub. And it's pretty much stayed true to that origin, you know, what, 14 years later. And there's never been a shortage of topics to discuss on that pod, Chidge, really, has there? And there's been plenty of memorable moments that I can remember too. But of course, here today, we're largely here to speak about the current situation regarding Roman Abramovich. I mean, what's the feeling from the terraces there at the moment, Chidge, as to how the situation has unfolded? I mean, it's been like a roller coaster just for the last few weeks, Connor. I mean, uh, if you remember the kind of the timeline of it, uh, first of all, uh, you know, Roman, I'm just trying to remember now because so much has happened, but uh, it was before, I think we got a, a, an inkling that he might, that he was considering to sell. And then they said, no, he's not going to sell. And then the sanctions came in, didn't they? And then he, he tried to off it to the Chelsea Foundation and that clearly wasn't going to work. And then he had to announce he was selling it. Um, but yeah, you know, there is, I think there's been a real problem in the media uh, because people are very black and white, Connor. And, and I don't think many people are able to uh, understand or even forgive why Chelsea supporters can't, on the one hand, uh, be absolutely and completely against Vladimir Putin and what he's done and is doing to the Ukraine, which is just beyond awful. I mean, all wars, hell, but this is particularly, particularly despicable what's going on out there. So we can, we can, we can have thoughts like that and yet still go, yeah, but we love Roman Abramovich because of what he brought to the club and all the joy that he brought us. 
Um, if you if you if you if you say that, you get pilloried at, at best, or, or accused of being a warmonger or supporting Putin at worst, which couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and then they say, oh, you should have known. You should have known that uh, that uh, Roman Abramovich's money was dirty, and you should have done something about it. What absolute nonsense! Nobody, nobody knew in two thousand and three at all. The only person I know of who who thought that was was a guy called Tony Banks. It was a Chelsea supporter and an MP. He was the only one going around saying, "Do you think he, you know, he, he can't surely pass the fit and proper persons test?" Most supporters had no idea who Roman Abramovich was. And then once he gets in there and you know he's really rich, which means you, you know that we're going to win stuff. I mean, I knew we were going to win the Premier League uh, the minute he hired Mourinho. And actually, the minute he bought the club, it was just I just felt that we were going to. So, you know, he brought us a huge amount of joy. Some of the best nights I've ever had in my life. I mean, Munich, Munich 2012, nothing will ever be better that. So, you know, he's brought a huge amount of joy and pleasure to a lot of Chelsea supporters. And it's really hard to let go of that. You know, you can't just pretend it never happened. But you can feel like that towards this guy who's single-handedly revolutionised the entire club, brought a winning mentality and success to it, invested in the academy, won us lots of trophies, brought great football to the club, great players, uh, done brilliant things with the Chelsea Foundation, uh, done stuff with the, you know, it just goes on and on and on. You can have all of those thoughts, but you can still think that Vladimir Putin is an evil SOB and uh, and what he's doing in in Ukraine is abysmal and appalling, but for for the media, the media won't let you do that. You just have to, you know, they, you have to be one or the other. But you can be both, and I certainly am both. Yeah, and I think obviously we have to reiterate, like obviously this is just, this is a football podcast, change, But like obviously what's going on at the moment is beyond atrocious, and I echo that absolutely. Yet, when we speak about football and to speak about the context in which this is occurring within Chelsea Football Club, I find as though there's been social media more than ever has just been full of vitriol over the past month. And you see, of course, it, it's ha it happens anyhow most weekends, but like just rival fans, not even rival fans, broadcasters, journalists celebrating and dragging the name of Chelsea Football Club dragging through the mud. It's no reason as to why Chelsea fans feel ostracised and marginalised from the rest of the footballing community. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's you know, I mean, this goes back a long way. Uh, but if you if you attack a group of people, then, you know, they're inevitably going to stick together and, and have a go back. And that's a very Chelsea thing. But I mean, this has been coming for a long time. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s now, so... You know, the thing is that Chelsea have never really been liked by the media for one reason or another, as long as I can remember. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of that was down to the 60s and the 70s. They were seen as a bit flash, you know, the kings of the King's Road. Um, and then in the 70s and the 80s, you had all the hooliganism. Uh, Ken Bates wasn't very well liked either. And then, of course, Roman takes over. And what Roman did, he was a disruptor. He basically broke down, he broke apart the old order, the old established order. You know what England's like. England, England operates on, on the idea of the establishment being in control and having power. And in football terms, the establishment is Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham and Everton. And it always has been. So when we turned up, we broke apart the, the, uh, the double act of Arsenal and Man United, who were winning everything between them. So we annoyed them. 
we trod on Liverpool's toes because we put them further behind. And of course, we obliterated Spurs and Everton, and they were never going to be happy with that. So these people, and I include the media in that, you know, because basically they love they love things to be simple and having these big teams as the big teams makes things simple for them. And we ruin that as well. So, you know, people have been waiting 20 years to come back and have a go at us and kick us. So they've they've seen their opportunity and they're all piling on in, you know. And I suppose that there's another side to it, too. I mean, maybe uh, I think there's a lot of scapegoating going on. You know, so we all know if you if you if we were look if we were to look at the entire situation dispassionately, we would probably all say, yeah, the football football in England is screwed up. It is dysfunctional. There are too many wealthy people owning too few clubs and the fit and proper person test does not work and is not worth the paper it's written on. And that needs to change. And we all know that. Uh, So I suppose there's an element of guilt coming in from them and what we do when we feel guilty and we don't like stuff that we perhaps are responsible for, we find somebody else to project that onto and we have become that object. So I think there's a lot of that going on as well. So it's a, it's a complicated thing, but frankly, it's undeserved really, you know, it's absolutely all football clubs that have been successful have bought their success. Every single one, Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal, Blackburn, Man City, us, you name it. It's not just us. So why are we the only ones that get hammered for it? Yeah, but as you said earlier on with the media, it tends to be black and white and there's little there's little cause or there's little concern for a nuanced debate, especially with what's going on at the moment. You know, football and Chelsea, to be honest, is of relative importance within the bigger picture. However, for me, it just seems... You know, if you look at the Premier, the ecosystem of the Premier League, if you so will, that there's two certain other ownership groups in charge of two certain other Premier League teams that just seem to have blind eyes thrown elsewhere. And we'll get on to the takeover part, but, you know, it's been largely played out in public. There's been a lot of caution over actually the true intentions of several bidders. I mean, right now, Chidge, are you looking at any of these bidders and are thinking, well, I'd love to have them in charge? That's a really good question, Connor. I mean, before we get on to that, I mean, you know, you do need to, you're right about football being, you know, less relevant in a sense. And you're right when you, when you think about what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, Carlo Ancelotti, I love this quote that he said, which actually I found out recently. It was from, it was from Pope, uh, Pope John Paul, the one that was the Polish one. He used to be the goalkeeper, but it, I, he got it from him. But Ancelotti's version was, you know, football is the least important of the most important things. And I think that sums it up. But of course, you know, you can't take any, you know, you have to always have the context for this. And the context is that there's a lot of really bad stuff going on, thanks to Putin and in Ukraine. And we're all quite powerless to do anything about it. And here we go. We've suddenly got the perfect vehicle to heap our anger on and uh, get rid of our powerlessness and scapegoat them. And that's Roman Abramovich, because none of us can have a go at Putin. We can't do anything to him, but we can do something to Roman Abramovich. I think there's a little bit of that going on as well. But in terms of the owners, um, well, Connor, it's it's a bit of a nightmare, really, isn't it? Because the reality is, is that, you know, OK, whether whether Roman's money was dodgy or what, wherever it came from, blah, blah, blah. The reality is he spent a hell of a lot of it on Chelsea and he was not interested per se 
in making a lot of money out of it. I mean, he tried to tighten the ship over the last kind of five to 10 years. I mean, the, the one in, one out transfer policy is an example of that. Trying to get the club self-sustaining, trying to actually make the club profitable, having to, you know, fit within FFP. You know, he was clearly not, you know, doing what he used to do, which is just chuck money everywhere. But he loved football and he loved winning and he had a lot of money. So he would chuck money at it when he felt it was necessary. You are not going to get another owner like him at Chelsea Football Club, which means things are absolutely going to change. But the thing is, what we don't know is how they're going to change. And I think that's the problem that we've got. I mean, if you ask me honestly, do I like any of the bids so far? I would probably say no, actually. But that's because none of them will compare to Roman. Uh, I mean, if you look at all the American uh, the American bids, you know, the, 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 the Bowley, Ricketts, Johnson and whoever else the others are, you know, they're all of the kind of the sports franchise model. And I think sports franchise, franchises are, are an alien concept to England. You know, football here was born out of the community. It's part of the community. It's not something that you just kind of look at uh, in a very clinical way and turn into a franchise just to make money, which is really what they're all about. Americans are so doggedly commercial, and that's what they'll try and do. If that money's being funneled back into the club and put onto the pitch, then, hey, you know, I'm sure none of us will grumble, but there's something that just doesn't sit right with me about that. Uh, and, and I wonder about a lot of the bids that are more of individuals. I mean, there, in fact, there, are, there aren't really any people who can claim to be an individual with three and a half billion quid to spend coming in to buy it. So they're all going to be either sports franchises from America or investment consortiums from elsewhere in the world. And the clues in the question, Connor, investment. What is it people want when they make an investment? They want a return on that investment, and that tends to be monetary. So, you know, if you've got a load of uh, uh, investment managers and hedge funds putting money in, they're going to want their money out. They're going to want to cash out, and they want to going to cash out with more than they put in. And, you know, the more money that goes out of the club, the less is going on the pitch. So it worries me. And there's many, many topics up for debate, too, within that church. You have the stadium redevelopment. You have the women's side, which needs to be kept up, uh, the academy, and then keeping basically the existing talent pool and resources Chelsea have already together there. However, in reality, what we're looking at is probably Fulham Broadway being turned into Chelsea land, which we've seen both uh, the boy uh, Johnson bid speak about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, to be honest, Connor, this is exactly what has underpinned everything that the supporters trust, Chelsea supporters trust have been doing for the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I've been I've been involved with the supporters trust since we founded it in 2012. And I know I'm biased because I'm on it, but uh, I think they've been doing some great work, really kind of standing up for the supporters interest. But this is exactly what we've been saying. You know, we don't we don't want to own the club. We don't want to run the club. You know, maybe, yeah, you know, get a fan representative on the board. We've always we've always wanted that since the day we started the trust. It's been in our our motions and our policies since day one. But uh, what we really want is what we've said and we've said consistently. You know, you've got to you've got to protect the Chelsea pitch owners, preferably paying off the eight million loan as well, because the CPO eight million quid to the club. So protect the CPO by doing that. Don't change it at all because it protects uh, it protects the name Chelsea FC and, of course, it protects the freehold of the ground. So it can't just be sold from un underneath our feet uh, by a property developer and moved somewhere. Uh, we need to have a golden share. 
and a golden share is an idea. A lot of these ideas came from the football, uh, you know, the fan-led review uh, on football governance, which the government uh, made happen after the European Super League debacle. So we want a golden share, and a golden share basically extends what we've already got as a club with with the Chelsea pitch owners. But its its idea is that you know it's not like a monetary share or or an ownership or something like that. It basically provides a group of supporters, an organised group like the Trust, for example to have the right to veto uh, decisions that the club makes about the, you know, kind of heritage items. So the ground, the location, the name, the badge, the colour, anything that, you know, that supporters really, really value, which they see as part of the culture and the legacy and the heritage of the club. Uh, so it's a little bit more than just having the ground and the name, which we already have. So it's like a double lock, actually, for, for the CPO. Uh, a shadow board, so that means that they, they would set up a, a board of supporters who would monitor what the club do, uh, not the on the pitch stuff, but things like the commercial and the marketing and those kind of things. Any any decisions the club makes that might affect the supporters or piss the supporters off. Uh, also protecting the Chelsea Foundation, which is massively important and has done great work. The Chelsea women's team, the academy, and also, you know, make sure the club doesn't ever try and do uh, do what it did last April, which was to try and sneak off to the European Super League or any other competition like that, because that that potentially threatened the entire football pyramid by doing that. That could have killed football in this country. So if they're capable of making decisions like that, they need somebody, and usually that somebody is supporters, to be in there saying, no, you can't do that. You've got to think of the bigger picture here. So if they if, if any of the owners are prepared to implement all of that, I think most of the supporters who are members of the Supporters Trust, and in fact, most supporters would be pretty happy with that. It's obviously a lot for one ownership group or one consortium to take on. But if we see there's been, if there's one thing which has really irked me about how this situation has been dealt with, Chich, it's been how one man has just been a front for all the nations and the world's criticism over the past few weeks. And that man is Thomas Tuchel, who in my mind has gone up in my estimation you know, aside from any Champions League win, but how he's dealt with this situation as of so far. I mean, I couldn't imagine reflecting on a previous few Chelsea managers dealing with it as best as Thomas Tuchel has done. Well, it would have been quite funny seeing Jose Mourinho deal with it, wouldn't it, I suppose? But uh, I'm kind of half joking because I think it would have been quite funny. But I mean... <laughs> I mean, it's in, it's enough in my book that Thomas Tuchel is is clearly... I mean, he's got to be in the top three managers in the world, top three coaches in the world. That would be enough. It would be enough that he's won the Champion League, uh, Champions League with us within, you know, six months. Um, he's got us to every final of every competition we've competed in so far. He's improved players that looked like they were terrible, that he still played some of the Chelsea youth that he's arguably one of the most self-aware, articulate and intelligent managers I've ever seen. I mean, that would be enough, wouldn't it, actually? Any, any one of those would be enough. But on top of all of that, he's had to put up with the media riling him every day and trying to ask him about what's going on in, in, a, in a geopolitical sense, which he himself has said that he's not qualified to talk about and actually shouldn't have to be talking about because he's there to talk about the football but he's done it with a huge intelligence, a great uh, warmth. And uh, I think he's just, you know, the humility on the guy 
is brilliant. I mean, he, 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 he threw his toys out of the pram once, didn't he, when the guy asked the same question three times. But other than that, he answers every question and he answers it as honestly as he can. I mean, I, 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 it's so hard to say this because he's only been there for just over a year. And I, in the cold light of day, he's only won the Champions League and uh, the, the Super Cup and the World Club World Cup. But, you know, I hope he stays for, for a long, 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 long time. And if he does, I have no doubt he will be the greatest manager that Chelsea Football Club have ever had. It's stark and it's heavy praise because if you look at matters on the field, what he's had to put up with this season, that's been largely successful. Oh. I mean, obviously, a few things to iron out, such as attacking cohesion, consistency, Romelu Lukaku and injuries. But having watched 99% of the games thus far this season, I mean, he's so adaptable with the squad he has at his disposal, merging some, you know, leaders like Thiago Silva, Cesar Espoqueta, veterans of the game, with the youth players coming through. It's been... I've never felt a clearer sense of Chelsea identity within that team since Tuchel has taken charge last year. And it was missing. And I know Frank Lampard did his best and he brought it back in and he set the wheels in motion. But really, it is something else last May to have seen the likes of Reese James, Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham even, on that podium collecting the Champions League trophy. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, we, I think we've had an issue about identity for quite a while as a club. Um, I don't know why it seems to it seems to be hard for us to try and find one, but I think I mean it's been it's been written out about by a few people, including myself. Joe Tweeds wrote about this brilliantly as well. But we do have an identity, and the identity really was created by uh, by Roman and and the Roman era, if you like, and it was basically about winning. And it's really interesting to have heard Thomas Tuchel talk about it in a press conference last week about this winning mentality. And he said it was here when I arrived at the club. And this is why it's been quite easy for me to navigate our way through arguably the most difficult time the club's ever seen and keep the players isolated from it because they get it. It's all about winning football matches, this football club. And he's kind of right. I, I would go a bit further and say that actually his style of play, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think he's incredibly rigid and stubborn in some respects as a, as a football coach. But he's also, you're right, he, I think he's also incredibly adaptable, which is almost like a contradiction in terms. But I think it's true, isn't it? You look what he has done recently in terms of adapting. You can certainly say that. But yet his style of play doesn't really adapt. That's the interesting thing. That's what doesn't change. And I think that's also really become very much part of Chelsea's identity, really, since Mourinho turned up when we started getting teams that would shithouse wins. And I, I'm a big fan of that anyway, so I don't have a problem with that. But they were tough, mentally tough, physically tough, fit as well, you know, and, and they would match people step for step and they wouldn't take a step back and they would do whatever they could to win, to get over the line. And I think, I think Tuchel's kind of a, 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 like a 21st century version of what we had well we had we had Mourinho in the 21st century didn't we but you know he, he's out of a, a a 2022 version of what Mourinho was in 2005-6 but a bit more evolved if you like in every single way but maybe that's our identity we're not going to be a Man City and play perfect tippy-tappy football we're not going to be an Arsenal that talks about you know class and playing the right way and all that nonsense 
we're not going to be like Spurs who never win anything because they go Spursy. We're not going to be like Liverpool who always talk about history. Maybe this is who we are. You know, we do whatever it, we have to do to get over the line and win. And we do it by being mentally and physically tough. And we don't give a damn if we have to defend with 10 men behind the ball sometimes as long as we nick a goal. And maybe we should just embrace that and be okay with that. And looking ahead for the rest of the season, indeed, judging by the Champions League draw on Friday, we'll be playing, or Chelsea, in fact, will be playing another team which has that win-at-all-cost mentality in Real Madrid. Um, FA Cup semi-final draw took place this evening. The Blues have drawn Crystal Palace. I mean, what hopes are there for a successful end to a typical well, an atypical roller coaster <laughs> of a Chelsea season? Connor, I mean, you've been following Chelsea a long time, so you know the answer to that. I mean, this club always does stupid and remarkable things in equal measure. And, you know, I, I, I'm not saying we will win the Champions League, but it really wouldn't surprise me if we did, given everything that's going on at all. Um, I really would love to see us win the FA Cup, I have to say, because, uh, you know, having lost it in the last two seasons, and I think lost four out of the last five, that really, really hurts. I mean, I remember, I mean, obviously I wasn't, I wasn't there last year because uh, it was still kind of a bit COVID-y and I couldn't get a ticket. Um, and of course, the year before it was behind closed doors, I think, although they only had very few people there. Uh, I, was at the, I was at the one where we got beaten by Arsenal when Conte was in charge, when we could have won the double. And I've, I, I've rarely felt so bad leaving a football stadium after a loss. It really hurt that one. So I really want us to win the FA Cup because we've got a massive wrong to right there, as does Tuchel, because I think we were a bit unlucky against Leicester last year, but, you know, we should have won that really. And he should have won that. He's more than good enough. So I, I really hope we win the FA Cup this year. But the Champions League is all about luck, really. You know, the, the, the two times we've won it has been... Nobody expected us to win it in 2012. But I mean, that, that was out of all the sides that got to either the final or the semi-final in that period... That was the worst side we had. There's no way we should have won that final, and we did. And nobody expected us to win it last season, really. I mean, you know, when you think about the, the start to the well, the start of the season was pretty good with Frank, but you, you think about where we were in January, the fact that we were a very young team, the fact that we hadn't really been there or thereabouts for quite a long time. Nobody really expected us to win that. And that, what did we do? We went and win it. Well, you need luck to do that, I think. So you never know with the Champions League. I, I would be delighted if we did because it would be really it really would be two fingers to everybody if we did. So let's bring it on. And then when it's all said and done, Shitch, I mean, what does the future hold for Chelsea Football Club? Do you envisage at all that Chelsea enjoys half the success it did over the coming 19 years as it, as it did over the past 19? Well, I mean, there's the thing, Connor. We just can't know. We really can't. And I think I think the whole football uh, dynamic has changed from when I was growing up. When I was growing up, you know, football was cyclical. You know, teams had spells where they would be very dominant and then somebody else would take over and then somebody else would take over after them. And you kind of always grew up knowing that that's how football worked. But it's, I mean, Chelsea changed that. Chelsea absolutely changed that because... You know, wherever we were, whatever was going on with this club, we still usually ended up with a trophy at the end of the season. So we kind of have changed the entire football dynamic in a way. And of course, because Roman came in with a lot of money, it encouraged other people to do that. And having a lot of money keeps you there or thereabouts. Uh, and I mean, the, the barefaced reality is that the next season, 
whatever happens with Chelsea, you're going to have a very, very rich Newcastle, a very, very rich Man City, um, a very, very rich Liverpool, a very, very rich uh, Man United, and I would imagine a wealthier Spurs per se, because the revenue coming in from their stadium will start to kick in, I would have thought. So it's going to be really, really tough. I mean, Newcastle are clearly going to be the, the big issue, but it's going to be very tough, as it always is. But I think if you look at it in the, through the lens of having a new owner in, all things being equal, if they, if they you know, are prepared to put the money into the club, what I would say is, you know, whoever comes in and buys this club is in a perfect situation because all the hard work's been done. You know, Roman Abramovich has uh, put us into the elite of European football with, a, with a, an unparalleled track record of winning trophies. We've got some quality world-class players at the club, uh, you know, international players. We've arguably got the best academy in the world and are producing, still producing hugely brilliant talent. Um, we've got a great uh, training centre. We've got everything in place. Every, you know, what I don't want is for an owner to come in and throw the baby out with the bathwater because there's not a lot that really needs fixing. It just needs being built on. The foundations are there. So you don't really have to change much. What you need to do is to carry on doing what works and enhance it so that we can continue to compete against the new challenges that are coming up. Um, and, I, and I really hope that that's what any new owner will do. If they don't do that, then they're clearly an idiot or they don't have the club's best interests at heart. One thing's for certain, things will always remain interesting at Chelsea football. <laughs> Stanford and Genio. And no, it's, uh, it's so true. And I think it's a soap drama that will... Um, Continue to provide longevity in our lives, anyhow, following the events at SW4. But Chidge, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, as discussed, big fan of the podcast. Obviously, been listening now for I think six years at this stage. Back to the Antonio Conte maiden days. But um, yeah, look, let's look forward to the end of the season, whatever happens with the ownership, and um, we'll have to bring you tennis soon and get that point again. Us. Well, I mean. Connor, next time you come over for a match, you send me a WhatsApp and we'll we'll have a we'll have a decent pint of Guinness if there are any pubs left in Stamford Bridge, but we'll have a decent pint of Guinness. And I mean, I I, I used to pop over to Dubai quite a lot actually because I I've certainly uh, I've, I've, the last time I went over there actually that was a while ago that was nearly ten years ago but I was making a film over there and uh, I, I got to know a lot of the carefree in the UAE boys and girls so I've got some mates out there Diana. And Yusuf, both uh, big uh, members of Carefree in the UAE. And they got they used to go to this bar. I can't remember the blooming name of it now, but a uh, great place to go. I've, been, I've watched football matches, Chelsea matches with them. I can remember the match, right? It was it was Fulham. It was against Fulham. I think it was away at Fulham. And David Luiz scored a worldie from about 30 yards out. And I ran around the bar. Lo Loka? Loka bar. That's the, that's the bar. Do you know Loka? No. Uh, I think it's Dubai Marina. Anyway. I ran around the bar, shirt off, running around the bar, going crazy. It was great fun. So if I find myself over in Dubai, I'll certainly look you up for a pint there. But better if you came over here and we got a game in. Brilliant. Will do, of course. Chidge, absolute pleasure having you on. No, thank you. Thank you, Con. I really enjoyed it.